joy it is to be in the Lord's house uh, together and worship together and to encourage one another and be encouraged by the word of God and sing and where else can you sing like that? How many of you sing by yourself? You can just, some of you sing by yourself? It's not as fun as it is with a group of people, is it? Because they out-sing out you most of the time. So uh, what a joy it is to sing together. We're to, we're to encourage one another, and we do encourage one another through singing and praying and all the things that uh, we do. Um, but we come together to hear from God and to worship God. And So let me invite you with that uh, to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. If you're visiting with us and not familiar, we have been going through a study through the book of Hebrews and um, just uh, taking passage by passage, verse by verse, precept upon precept to to look at what is here and to uh, see how that applies to us and what God is saying to us today. And it's been a, a, a good, encouraging study and challenging all at the same time. So we're here in. Hebrews chapter number 12. I want to begin reading in verse number 14, and I'll read down to verse number 29. The Bible says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness, gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of those words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to the Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect to Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you, or see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens, This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, this is your word. We pray for help through the work of the Holy Spirit to understand it, Lord, we pray for each one here that they would uh, listen to your voice uh, through your word and through your spirit at work in them. In Jesus' name, amen. I have uh, debated back and forth how to look at this passage together, and 
I think that's a, that's a confident way of starting off. I think like that, isn't it? Scary. Uh, the thought that stays at the forefront of my mind is the reminder that the gospel that we preach, the message which we believe, the, the one we take to the ends of the earth is good news. Uh, we, by very definition of what gospel means, is good news. You're familiar with that to some degree. Each of us are. We receive good news as we get on the phone with a family member, a relative, or a friend, and we find that the cancer is in remission. We rejoice at that. That's good news, good to hear. Uh, maybe it's a child or a grandchild that gets a job or a promotion or gets into a school or a class or whatever it may be. And so we, we get the idea of what it means to receive or hear something from afar off or from someone we love, a friend or whatever the case may be, that rejoices our heart. That is good news. But much more than just our small world and the circle of influence that we have, the gospel is good news uh, beyond the borders of, this, of our lives and of this nation. It is a good news given to humanity despite the, the barriers and the fences and the walls. It is a good news despite the language and the cultural differences which, which we see all over the globe. It's good news for humanity, all black, white, brown, and every other in between that you might find the gospel is good news to mankind. In that it is unique, that it is that one single message that fits all of human existence. That one single message of good news and hope and salvation and love, that one good news of, of deliverance which every human being may benefit from is the very reason why we send and support missionaries all over the earth because we believe that the gospel is good news and it is good news to mankind. It's not just good news to mankind. It is, it is good news because it is God's gospel. Well, Paul refers to it in Romans chapter number 1 when he says it is the gospel of God. It is good news because it is his, his message. It is about what he has done and what he has provided for us in Christ Jesus. His actions and his coming towards us and not our going towards him. It is his and, and his work of salvation, his cure of the human ailment. It is his movement towards us and, and that in itself is good news. It is good news and it is God's message and it is that gospel message which Paul says is transformative. Speaking to the Corinthian church, he decided and determined, I would know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That when you are changed and when you have hope and when you boast in your salvation, you're resting not in the wisdom or cunning craftiness of mankind like I can con you into something, but that you rest in the power of God. That's what he says in Romans when he speaks about the gospel that he's ready to preach to them because he understands that it is that gospel message which is the power of God unto salvation. That's good news because it transforms us. Unlike just rejoicing a little bit with our friends when we hear of those medical reports that come back in a positive fashion and we rejoice for a little while, these, this message, what God has given to us, is, is life-changing, life-altering. It is good news. And is that good news for many other reasons we could discuss, but I want us to consider as we look at this section in Hebrews, it's good news because of the blessings which it gives to us, it promises us. 
I want you to notice first with me as we look at this what the gospel is not. And as we consider what the gospel is not, I want to just assert to you that is good to hear. Look again with me in verse number 18. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and the tempest, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The gospel is not a message of works. It isn't called to us to do more or do better. It's not a religious system that is, that is built up in order to, to hopefully if you exercise its disciplines and you go through the motions enough or you practice some cultural ritual or rite, then, then eventually all of the good that you do will undo all the bad that you have. It is not a man-made attempt to come to Christ. We do not preach in that sense the law because Paul tells us that, that salvation is by grace and not of works that no flesh may boast in the presence and in the sight of God. The example that he gives to us here is from verse 18 to verse 21 is that description found for us in Exodus 19. You can read that later on today. And the description, it was the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, coming before Mount Sinai. And as they come before the mountain, God is preparing them to, to give them the law, bring them into covenant with him. You, you see the scene for you described itself. And God tells Moses in Exodus that he will come down in a thick, dark cloud. Fire falls upon the mountain. And the description is here. It is, it is a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. You can almost imagine it in your minds when you see the, the volatile nature of a volcano. Just overwhelming the presence and, and just that side alone would almost make you wonder whether you're going to make it through it or not. God coming down and displaying his holiness, his otherness of the people of Israel, his, his separatedness. And in that demonstration, it is an overwhelming vision of who God is. He is awesome and powerful, speaking from the whirlwind. In fact, as he begins to speak to Moses before the people in verse number 19, there was the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg, don't let him speak to us any longer lest we perish. You go talk to him, Moses. I don't think they really cared whether or not Moses would perish. You go talk to him. Tell us what he says and we'll do it. But just don't let him speak to us. The Bible describes the voice of God in several different ways, but in one we hear it described even of that in Christ himself as a voice of many waters, raging, deafening, without which we cannot ignore. Here they overwhelmed at the presence of God, at the voice of God, which came down from the mountain, so much so that they begged that God would no longer speak to them. Now there is the reality that God is showing them, even in this process of revealing himself on Sinai, you cannot handle me. Not a casual thing, not a common thing that you do with your other gods, you just carry around and set up anywhere you want to. 
You cannot handle who I am and, and the reality of what that means, you being near me. You need, and, and there's an insistence all through the Old Testament of you need a mediator. Moses was that figure in the Old Testament. In fact, it goes on, so holy was he and so other than them, so sanctified was this scene that, that even if a beast touched the mountain, it was to be stoned. It's a solemn assembly, a time when God would come down and declare his commandments written in stone that would weigh over the people of God, that they would bear as a burden through the Ark of the Covenant, his law, rigid, set, fixed, in compliance with his own nature and his own character, his law given to the people of God. It was a terrible and it was an awful scene. The Bible is simply saying that this is not the mountain which the gospel brings us to. This is not the scene or the revelation which we, we rest at. Now, I know in some ways we, we, and some of you may not gather the soberness of it. But what you see at Sinai, it, it is an unapproachable, unclimbable. It is a God that is set apart from us. It is a place where the law stands to judge us. It is this vision which the children of Israel are given these Ten Commandments and, and other things. It is this place which works is set out in front of them, the commandments of the law set in stone. And I remind you what James says, it is this place where they are reminded that they are not able to bear them. James says, if you offended in one part of the law, you're a lawbreaker, you violated the whole law. And isn't it remarkable as you read the account in Exodus that Moses no sooner walks down as God engraved uh, the law on those two tablets of stone that he casts them to the ground and shatters them into pieces. Why? Because at the very giving of the law, the children of Israel already violated and already broke it. It is the description of every man-made religion and every futile attempt of I can do better. And I can be moral. And I can be good. And in all of that we're blind to the vision of God. And the, the task that is set before us. A mountain which cannot be touched. A climb which cannot be made. A God which cannot be approached. I was taking a class years ago. I think I was 30. And I just went in for a few days to see if I wanted to take it. And, and I thought I would... You know, maybe maybe I'd keep it, maybe I'd take another one. I'm not sure. It was apologetics class. I never had been in a class like that. It was interesting, and I really tested the patience of my instructor. They say there's no such thing as a stupid question. I don't think that's true. I don't think my professor thought that was true. And he would begin talking about all these false religions and all these systems of people that they made up and and it struck me, and I, I just asked the question. I said, that's a lot like works, isn't it? Like they're trying to work their way to heaven. He just looked at me like, I should already knew that. He begins to discuss another group of people, and I don't know what they were or what they were doing or what they were worshiping, but this thought hit me again. That's a lot like works. That's a lot like trying to earn your way to heaven, isn't it? I think at that point he's like, yeah, they're all like that, and so let's move on. <laughs> it is true, though. Religion is like that. It is what you can do. 
It is what you must attain. It is what you must achieve. It is, it is even in our nature, even if we're not religious in the sense of I, I commit to this religion or Islam or Buddhist or, or all these other places, it, it is in our very nature to assume just because our morality, just because of our own inherent goodness or genuineness that we can approach God. It is to say that we come to this Mount Sinai and, 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 and to say we're good enough to approach. And God's saying, no, you're not. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all left in fear and trembling. But that's not what the gospel, that's not what God is bringing us to. The good news is that God doesn't save us based upon your work. He doesn't save us based upon what you can achieve and accomplish. It isn't coming back to the law and hope you've fulfilled it all. What a relief that is. What a relief for those who wrestle with self-righteousness growing up. That kind of, you just got to be holy enough, whatever that means. And yet he says, it is not the place where Christ brings us. That is not the place where the message of God leaves us. Verse number 22, it is good news because it is a message of grace, not of works. It's found in grace and the fact that we have access. Notice at the first part of verse 22, but you have come. You've been granted permission. You've been granted access. You've been granted favor. That's what grace is, unmerited favor uh, to enter into the presence of God. You've been granted that. You've been given that. That's where God is calling us to in the, to the presence of himself. But not in the same image. As we see the overwhelmingness in Exodus 19, look at the, the description that he gives to us. You've been, you've been invited, you, you come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. I was reading a book, uh, This World is Not My Home, just little brief, um, short chapters, almost devotionals on the kingdom of God and, and heaven. We haven't got to heaven yet. I mean, getting through the other stuff first. But he begins with this, this interesting, never have thought about it. Uh, he speaks about Cain and his punishment for killing his brother. And God says, you'll be a vagabond upon the earth, a wanderer, no place to belong. And the very first thing Cain does is build a city. He says, repeating back to God as God uh, declares his judgment, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Uh, there is that roaming, wandering in our life. Uh, it's a part of our human nature, that belonging which we want to find a place, which, which is ours, which we call home. Cain was, was not unique in that. It's, it's part of our human nature. You see that with the Tower of Babel. Let us make a place for ourselves and a name for ourselves, a place where we belong. Because sin and the curse and our separation from God has left us desolate. I think Augustine was right when he tells us that God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until it finds its home in him. 
here. He says, we have not been brought to the the wilderness. We have been brought to the city of the living God. Uh, The the patriarchs were, were nomads. They lived in tents. They were roaming and searching. And Abraham tells us why. Because he was searching for a city whose builder and founder was God. The the promise that God gives us, the blessing that he gives us is belonging, citizenship. That's what he's telling us here in the city of our God. Peter says, in this life, you're, you're wandering and you're strangers and you're pilgrims, but that will not be how it always is. You have a place you belong. You have a home. That is where we've been invited into. That is what Christ has done for us. Beloved, we're not home yet. But we've been invited to that place. We've been enrolled in the city of our God That place which we have been created for and recreated for in the new birth. Not only do you see it described as the city of our God, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Just really emphasizing what is going on here. And we see a a, a language of that in Roman or Revelation chapter number uh, 21. As the Bible describes New Jerusalem coming down from heaven, that holy city, that holy mountain where God will be with his people. He will be the light of that city and there will be no defilement. This is the place where Christ brings us. This is the promise which he gives to us in the gospel. This is what he is delivering and bringing us to, the blessing of being born again and brought into the family of God. What a glorious reminder that we've been made accepted in the beloved, the Bible tells us. And to his city, and to his home and his dwelling place, the place where he rules. In the presence of innumerable angels, your translation may say myriad, uh, either way it's you're not going to number them all it's not like one two three four five servants of god spiritual servants of god and notice at the end of that not only in the presence of innumerable angels and festal gathering it is a place of celebration of worship think of it as as that high holy days in the in the nation of israel when everyone's all dressed up for that occasion i'm not trying to say that's why you should wear a tie to church because we're preparing for that. I wore one today. That's why I said that. Ezra and I are making preparations, aren't we, Ezra? But you see the contrast. He doesn't call us to fear and dread. He doesn't call us to overwhelmingness in the sense of trembling. He calls us to a place of celebration, a place of continual worship where the angels are crying out, holy, 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 and the saints of God are saying, amen, amen. That is where he's calling us to. That is the blessing that he offers to us in Christ. That is ours in him. Even now, and I know when you speak about that heavenly Jerusalem, we we look at that in the future, what God will do, even as he talks about shaking the earth. But but this is a promise to us now. He says that in the language back in verse number 22, for you have come. This is something that you have already came to. This is already yours. Verse 23, not only do we see this festal gathering to the assembly, the same where we get the word church from, though here it may better be understood as assembly, some argue about that, but the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. 
is he saying? He's saying the people of God. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those whose sins has been covered. Those who have been made a new creation in Christ Jesus. Those who belong to a, a different world and a different kingdom. There they're gathered in the presence of God. And can I say to you this morning, if you're born again, that is your blessed hope. That is your comfort. It isn't in this life. It isn't that we'll get over this or get over that or get over that because something else always comes along. Our comfort, our hope our, is that inheritance, that share that we have in the kingdom of God and in his inheritance, in his kingdom. That's what he's been speaking about all through the book of Hebrews. There is a rest for the people of God. There's an inheritance at the end of all of this, which we who, who believe, we who have been saved, we who have been rescued have to anticipate. Not only do you see the people of God enrolled in heaven and to God himself, the judge of all, God who judges over all with infinite wisdom, Justice, righteousness. It is his kingdom. It is his place. In some ways that may be dreadful for us as we think about God being judge over all, but in other ways it ought to be joyful for us because he always judges rightly. You and I have lived under rules and kingdoms and people and and. and whatever democracies or republics or whatever you want to argue about, all of that, where we have seen the, the blunt of wicked rulers, wicked leaders, wicked politicians, wicked bosses, wicked whatever it may be, and, and always twisting their power to their own ends and their own means. We've, we've seen it play out through history. Just take your history class when you're in high school, and you see the effect of wickedness in power. But it's not that way in heaven. The righteous judge. The holy judge. He is there. But notice he says not only do you see that. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And some wonder what he's referring to here. Maybe the martyrs in the book of Revelation. I think it's to the saints that's gone on before us. You think about your loved ones that you've mourned and you miss. That's died in the faith trusting in the gospel. There they are in the presence of God. I think we're meant to think that way. I think the Bible teaches us, implores us, commands us, encourages us to think on these things. Encourage yourself with these things, he tells us in 1 Thessalonians. What a joy we have to anticipate. What a promise and blessing that is laid out before us. But, but all of this is peripheral. And in some ways, when we think about all this, if it is that great and if it is that good and, and that overwhelming, I may not belong. I may not fit in. What gives me confidence that God will let me in? Well, he tells us in verse 24, look at it. And to who? Because when we look at the kingdom of God, what does he point out? Now, Jesus is known by other names, as we find in the Bible. He is Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords. He, he is Lord of his people, Lord of the church, Lord of the earth. There's no one above him, no one beside him. He is the judge of all. Amen? 
He is Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one who has come to fulfill all the promises of God for, the, for his people. But here he doesn't say that. Because in our tiredness and in our weariness and when we've fought against sin in our own life and we fought against oppression, we, we fight against trouble and Satan and all this stuff that goes on in our life, where do we find comfort? We find comfort in one who's like us. Jesus, a man, one who knows what it is to be tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. My comfort is not, not found in things that I cannot fathom or I cannot, I cannot comprehend. It's found in this one person who took on flesh, became like us, so that in being like us, he could deliver us and secure us and sustain us. That's why he uses Jesus to bring us comfort, that we have a mediator, a mediator that is like us, yet without sin yet without sin spotless but not just because we have a mediator but because of what that mediator did for us not just to the mediator of a new covenant but to the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel now we saw that back in Hebrews chapter number 11 the blood of Abel crying out for justice and retribution Cain killed him violently. His blood cried out to the Lord for vengeance. But the blood of Christ does not cry out for, or for vengeance. It cries out for mercy, forgiveness. That the shedding of his blood is the means of our sanctification, is the means of our acceptance. That's what he said earlier in chapter 9, 10. He's trying to remind us that without the shedding of blood, without the spilling of that blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. There is no entrance into heaven. There is no festal gathering and hope in eternal life. All of it is based upon the shedding of his blood, saying that we're brought near to the mount of God, not based upon what we've done, but based upon his grace poured out through the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away our sins? I said those words backwards, but it's the same thing. You get it, right? We have good news, good news which brings about great blessings because it is news of God's grace towards us in Christ Jesus. There's no other way. So might, we might wonder in some parts, why does such good news come with such strong warnings? Have you ever thought that? Hebrews has five sections throughout it of strong warnings, some of which make us scratch our head and wonder, can we be saved and lose our salvation? Can we go on? Why is he speaking so roughly? After all, if it's good news, joyful news, if it's news of life and salvation, why such a sober face? Why such a strong warning label on the gospel? Let me give you a few reasons why he speaks this way, and then we'll look at verse number 15 and verse number 25. He speaks this way because he loves them. Because every parent and every, every, every loved one, everyone who cares about you, speaks at times in your life with concern. And that concern is in a language, in a tone that says, this is serious, I'm not kidding. 
Maybe you've experienced that with your parents when you've tried to tell them something and you're goofing off and, and trying not to take life serious and, and they look at you with that look of, if you don't stop that, I'm going to help you stop that. Because what they were saying was a serious matter. Love in itself propels us to, to speak in tones of seriousness when seriousness is called for. You, you, those of you who have children have spoke to your children of the consequences of their actions. If you do this, then I will, and you're not going to like it. Or maybe the dangers that they'll face when they go off by themselves for the very first time, like on a plane ride or what to do and how to, how to be serious and sober. And so he speaks to them in serious tones because he, he loves them. He speaks to them seriously because of the trials and pressures that they face. And it is in our times of difficulties that God uses sometimes words of affirmation and encouragement. Words of belonging, fellowship, and love. Promises of victory. Promises of sustaining strength. And sometimes, even in those times, he uses words sharper, harder, heavier to take in. But the very words which we need to hear to be sober about our life, about sin, and about the outcomes of our choices. It is a means of God's grace. It is care out of our trials and difficulties that God speaks to us in all sorts of ways to encourage us to strive for peace and holiness. But I think also, thirdly, he uses and speaks so sharply to us because some people within the church stand in greater danger than others. It would be easy for me to assume this morning that all of us are on the same spiritual plane, that we're all in this together, and that, that we all believe and think and trust in all of it the same way, but that would be foolish. We're all in different places. We all believe and think differently in some ways, but some are in more danger than others because some have heard the gospel. Some of you have heard over and over about the gospel of Jesus and about salvation and the consequences of dying and your sins. And, and there's a way of hope and a way out. And if you don't repent and believe, then, then it's not a way that you will have. It's not a promise to you. It's serious. And yet over and over, many people within the church, and most scholars agree that that's what's going on in this church, many people who have heard intellectually what the Bible says and yet have not acted upon it. They have not met it with faith. They have not believed it. It has not been theirs. They've been coming along the way, standing on the fridges, and never fully in the body of Christ, never fully in receiving the gospel. They are on the verge of walking away. They have had the facts about the gospel, but they still remain unconverted. I think fourthly, he speaks so sharply because there's no words of comfort outside of Christ. The natural consequence of rejecting the message of Christ, the natural consequence of rejecting him, leaves no room for comfort or blessing. You see that in Esau, he sought the blessing but could not find it. 
No words to make the rejecter at ease or feel safe in his choice or her choice. No confidence that their rejection may be overturned in the future. The Bible speaks emphatically. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. It matters that not only we hear what God has done for us, but what we do with what we hear. So in that way, he speaks to us soberly. And this last time, he speaks with such sobriety in verse number 15 and verse number 25 and these strong warnings of concern. See to it. Make it a point. Take consideration that no one fails the grace of God or fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that, that, that you don't refuse him who is speaking. Verse number 25, both of which reminds us to take close consideration to what we've heard and what we've done with what we've heard. To fall or fail to obtain the grace of God is to fail to come all the way in by faith. That the gospel is a command to repent and believe and and be saved than it is to hear and to, to acknowledge, to, to look at the facts, to pick it up, to observe it and, and look at all the facets and lay it down and, and remain as you are. I remember I was looking at watches a while back and went to the mall and you look at those nice glass cases. And just curious because I wasn't going to buy one at the time, I said, let me see one of those. I just want to see how much they cost. I pulled it out and put it on there and I picked it up and I looked around and I looked at all of it and looked at it and I just put it back and walked away and said, nope. And spiritually speaking, many do that week after week. Hearing the fact that Jesus Christ died and, and paid the penalty for sins like they are in offers hope to people like them. And yet at that offer, at that explanation, they look it up, they observe it, how nice it is, and they let it go and go about confident in their own ways and in their own works. Because the gospel is good news. The rejection of it is such terrible news. Here he's showing us that the danger of the root of bitterness in their trials and their situations, verse number 15, uh, rises up, destroying many in the body of Christ. And, and that for the temporary, momentary pleasures of this life, they disdain the spiritual promises of heaven. Why do I say that? Notice with me verse number 16. See to it, not only yourselves, but those around you. There's that spiritual care, that concern for those among us, not just our own lives. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. He despised the inheritance of God. He put no value or no stock in the blessing of his father and the promise of Abraham. He had no care for it, insomuch so that I'd rather have a bowl of soup than what God has promised me. And I would just say this to some of you young people here of a lot of life ahead of you, the temptation of sin in the world, that is exactly what it offers you. Give no concern or no care for any any end time thing. Give no consideration to what might come or the end of your life or, or what eternity will be like. Just live in the moment and for the pleasure. And that's all you've got to care about. But can I say there's a danger in that and presumption that, that you can always make it right in the end because we don't have that promise. You don't have that promise. The Bible says Esau 
Afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He came to his father. His father had already given his blessing away, weeping through tears. He said, surely there's a blessing for me. And he says, no, it cannot be undone. There's a moment in our life that our full rejection of Christ and our full rejection of the gospel will be settled and final. We'll have our heart's desire. And that's the fear that he has for the people. That's why he speaks so soberly. What a tragedy it would be to stand and, and, and like Judas kiss the door of heaven to only fall headlong into hell. A, a concern, a, a sober warning that, that God has given us this good news and this great blessing of joy that's not based upon your works. It's based upon what God provided through us in Christ. But to reject that is to reject everything. And the end is to reject your own life. Verse number 25, he adds to that in that same frame, kind of bookending this warning, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See to it that you mix what you hear with faith, as he mentions earlier. And that is the exhortation to us. We're to be diligent in our own lives. Not to be self-deceived. Not to be comfort with sin in our presence. Not to, be, not, to, not to okay and excuse away rebellious attitudes and a rebellious heart and, and sin in our life. We're just people. People's people. And we say stuff like that. You probably don't say it like that. You say it, your version of it, whatever you're. To pursue peace and holiness, to be diligent in our own life, to, to not only be diligent in our life, but care for others because of what's at stake, to, to revel in the good news that God has given us. And he, and he kind of concludes this, which we'll look more at it next week probably. He kind of concludes our, our resort, uh, our end in verse 28 that, beloved, you and I are to be grateful, grateful, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. An offering to God, acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And what is acceptable reference? Uh, what is acceptable worship in Romans twelve one and two? That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We believe, and preach, and rejoice. It is at the heart of our thanksgiving. It is at the very foundation of our hope. It is at the very center of our faith, the good news that Jesus Christ is our mediator and through his blood we have been made accepted. And maybe you're here this morning and I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're here and maybe you need to be reminded that it is a joyful message. It is good news, but it is a sober message. Mix it with faith. Don't stand outside. And try to make it on your own because you won't. The hill is unapproachable without Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together. Thank you for your grace and goodness to us. Thank you for the promise. As we look at the world and the this kind of dystopian kind of scene we see around us with the chaos constantly, that you, you bring us to a different kind of place. 
We are accepted and belong to a city which, which as a builder and a founder is you. Ruled by your goodness, by your justice, and by your holiness. You've made us accepted in Christ and offered to us, offered to us a place, a home, which our hearts have longed for. And Father, I know that you know, there are temptations in this world that we face. There's moments where we, we are tempted to think little of that blessing. God, I hope just even in part of our time this morning that it would stir again our hearts of the, the grandness, the joy, the, the infinite infiniteness of what you have given to us god i pray for those here this morning that do not know you god if there be any here who have heard the gospel over and over that today today they would no longer tarry no longer wait no longer stand on the outside lord but they would come holy to the mount of god through the blood of jesus christ repenting of their sins and putting their faith in him Lord, i pray you'd open their eyes stir in their heart that longing Lord, that they might know what it is to rejoice and be thankful for the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Lord, be with us this day as we, as we carry on and strengthen us and encourage us to do your will this week. In Jesus' name, amen.